Welcome to Advanced Fashion Disruption, with co-hosts Benson Roberts III and Megan Somerville, where we discuss the tragic, the predatory, the glory, and the deep beauty of fashion. Hey, Benson, it's Megan. I just want to sit and really have our first episode be about this process that you and I want to develop about digging into the really dark corners of our fashion past. And shine I think, the light, sister, shine the light, burn it all down. And I think being open about our own fashion past and all of its glory, but at the same time, the things that made us grow more than the glory did. Right, um, uh, you know, I like to call that the, the glory and the gory. <laughs> it totally feels that way. Because <laughs> uh, it, um, it gets messy sometimes. Well, right. And, and like, um, as it gets messy and as we hone our skills at the same time, that kind of flows directly with what I want to ask you, designer to designer, is as your tastes have changed over these years, decades of designing, like, you have this really incredible retrospective taste. And my first question is, why did I meet you in Texas? Why did I meet you at the home of wedding flip-flops? What's going on? Oh my God, <laughs> Talk to my, me about that. You're not lying about wedding flip-flops. You know, Megan, when I when I first got to Texas, part of the plan, uh, not the reason, but part of the plan for being in Texas was to open up maybe a Congress Avenue or, or uh, South First or something um, um, shop to, to bring real fashion, edgy fashion to a pretty edgy city. And I was sitting uh, out having coffee on the veranda of Halcyon before it became all Zhuzhi. And some girl ran up uh, 4th Street uh, holding a bag over her head, shaking it, screaming that she got her wedding shoes. And I was all interested, man. I was like, oh my God, what did, did she get Lou Bowden? Did she get Jimmy Choo? Did she got a Ferragamo? What did she buy? And then she sat down with her friends and opened up an abomination box and pulled out bangled, spangled, sequined rhinestone flip-flops and white for a wedding. And I said <laughs> to myself, not my market. And that's, you know, that's when I decided I would just manufacture out of my little Southwest Austin home and manufacture I did. But why did I come? The question is, why did I, I come to Austin? That, that's not a, that's not a happy question, Megan. That's, uh, it's not a happy question. My, uh, my partner had been killed by a drunk driver um, a couple of years prior. Mm -hmm. And in my grief, I was, I was working on a film and I, I was in Vegas when I got the news. Um, in my grief, I just kind of lost my shit and quit all my jobs and uh, would wake up in the morning in whatever city I was in and head to the plane train or uh, in some cases, even an automobile and go to the next town. Um, trying to get away from uh, trying to get away from it, trying to get away from the grief and the pain. And I finally, uh, when I recognized that I was mostly going to towns and having crazy wild sex parties unprotected, uh, and that was my um, passive aggressive form of suicide for myself. Um, I thought, well, you know, this needs to stop Benson. Um, number one, it hasn't worked. Number two, uh, it's been a couple of years, you need to get your shit together. So I had a friend uh, that had a house in Southwest Austin and she was renting me um, two rooms, 
believe it or not, for $300 for two rooms. Uh, and, then, the and then uh, $200 covered all of the utilities, the best internet, the best. She was a TV addict. So, you know, I had all the TV that one could ever want. So it's 6,722 channels of basically nothing. And uh, I, I decided to take her up on that offer because I just needed a door that I could close on the world in a place that wasn't so expensive that I had to be a workaholic to afford it. Um, I got a job at AT&T Wireless and began the healing process. Um, and it took a good good year before I was ready to even think about setting up and doing fashion again in manufacturing. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was, that was uh, it, it's not a pretty reason and it's not a happy reason. And I think that it's, it's really a valuable thing to talk about because designers always have these well-designed plans for how it's going to go. And the truth is, is that life is going to continue to happen. And sometimes something so shitty is going to happen that it sweeps you completely off of your feet. And, and you may find yourself down, like I did in my case for about three years, um, struggling just, just to find myself. And, and that's okay. You know, I, I've had my, my, my greatest successes were in my 20s and 30s. But my most stable successes, my most expansive successes, the empire that I was in the process of building from Texas to Detroit uh, was going to be the most successful. This was going to be the billion dollar empire that would allow me to just make pretty things the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, 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 we go through cycles, right? Tragedy, um, tragedy is, is a hell of a driver and grief is a hell of a driver. And as artists, we feel things deeply and we have to be prepared for life to throw shit at us, man. Yeah, I would definitely say that grief, uh, I would probably put it maybe in this order, grief, revenge, lust, and muse probably are the biggest motivators, at least um, in the artistic field, know, from my personal. I know it's coming. <laughs> I know it's yeah. Okay. You're going to go there. Um, well, you know, I'm going to segue. Um, we're talking about grief. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I'm going to preface this uh, to our listening audience by letting you know that Megan and I have discussed this podcast and discussed this first interview in depth. And we have agreed that nothing would be sacred, yeah. that no subject would be taboo that no matter how deep or potentially painful it is, that we can discuss it because we want to, to be transparent and we want to share the reality of what it's been like to be major independent design houses. Um, and, and in that process, uh, Megan and her, and her motherly brilliance uh, has come up with a concept that if it gets too deep or too painful that we will do aftercare, which will be behind a paywall for those of you who want to, um, uh, to uh, be privy to the healing aspect and to the um, caring aspect. So uh, that, that is the preamble because I don't want people to think that I'm a horribly cruel prick because my next question is hard, Megan. It's, it's a hard one. Um, I remember when you were trying to get pregnant. Mm -hmm. uh, this was during your Texas best designer years. Um, and you lost not one, but two pregnancies. How the yeah. fuck did you manage that kind of loss and still make beautiful things and continue to build a brand? Well, I think it was, um, 
an enormous heaping of unhealthy dissociation. <laughs> um, because I had to, like, I had to surround myself with all of the vibrancy of what was going on in my fashion community, which included the births of babies to colleagues. Mm -hmm. And it was a difficult like, time to be happy. We called that season baby bomb season because suddenly everyone yeah. had a baby in a stroller. I remember that. And so, um, you know, I think that creating through that was extremely difficult. I felt mm -hmm. like, um, as I have many times before, um, including currently, is that I feel like, um, without speaking with hubris, but rather disdain, that I'm always five years ahead of where I, my market is. And um, so part of me having this innate knowledge that I'm ahead anyway was like, okay, well, I can rest on my laurels. I can have these moments um, to have that grieving process. But the real realization that I had um, was not only was I grieving a child, but I was grieving a business dying. I was grieving a sense of community from uh the uh, fashion house that was um, supposed to be a co-op um, and um, and it just felt like um uh, you know a lot of pieces in my design life were falling apart in addition to other people being relevant on my own work and so it was hard to watch it was, as a spectator it was hard to watch and and I will tell you I I don't think that most of Austin knew I, think I kept quiet about it. I think that some of Austin, the people that you were specifically working with, were aware. Mm -hmm. um, and, and and again, not to toot my own horn or, or uh, to speak in hubris, I know that I was one of the very few people that you called and had serious conversations with. And I remember one particular call where you just wept broken. And I just sat with you because I had nothing to say. And I just sat with you as you wept. And um, that is part of the reason I'm one of your biggest fangirls, because not only did you have your shit to be the shit, but you were going through the kind of shit that allows you to eventually not give a shit about what other people think of you. And, and to watch you rise above that level of grief, which I myself had done, um, I think was the ultimate bonding for us. But that's such a hard time. And I'm sorry, that's a hard question. I'm, I'm actually on the verge of tears thinking about that time for you. It was definitely um, pivotal for sure. And like the healing with my child, my first living child, um, who's here with us, um, and she's nine, <sighs> and having that healing from her and the distance from so, so much of what felt regular and comfortable now brought pain. And so this move to Denver for me was not just, not just a restart for fashion, it was a restart emotionally because I was able 
to travel in the community anonymously. I was able to um, do my work without having um, inspiration or influence out of um, my basement hovel, um, my little Chateau d'Isseaux. And so, you know, beginning to make that healing process, even though it's still like bubbly and emotional and um, I'm still forgiving myself for how terribly I acted around other people that did have kids when I didn't know, like it's, it's been this big, huge emotional process, but I think by embracing it and beginning to talk about um, how, you know, loss of um, this you know, fairy tale ideal about how you instantly think your life is going to go as soon as you find out you have a family headed your way. Um, and then when so much chaos is going on in the community around you, um, it definitely changes your perspective about wanting to stay there, whether it's good for the kids that are living. Like it's, it was a big deal. It was really you know, big you know, and pivotal. That addresses something that I hear so many fucking morons say to people, you can't run away from your problems. And, and, and that is true. But a change of location is a physical, physical reset. And sometimes it is necessary to leave the place of grief. It's very much why I came home to Detroit from Texas. Mm-hmm. There, there was, in my last years in Texas, there was a lot of, um, a lot of shit and I needed a reset and I came home to where I'm comfortable and where they have good Arabic food. So I, I, I totally get that. And I think that it's important to, to tell people that resetting your location is not running away from a problem. It's giving yourself the foundation um, to ch- take the challenge of the problem and begin the healing process. Honey, are you, are, are you, are you okay? I'm okay, but I would like, like to take I, a pause because I need to to get my um my emotions back in check. Okay, um, so we're gonna okay. take a, about um thirty sixty second pause, and we'll be right back. Thank you.
So I feel a little bit better about taking that moment to just kind of process because you know some things like that are fresh for people and um you know I definitely was close but like trying to control a lot more of those emotions and be able to know that they're um triggering for myself and maybe for other people too yeah and uh, having a moment we 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 did a deep dive on those first two questions and touched on some serious grief and I will tell um our listening audience that um our pause was more than 30 seconds. Uh, our pause was about five minutes and Megan and I um, gave each other self, you know, gave each other care. There was aftercare and there was um, discussing it and breathing and, and preparing for the next. So we don't do this lightly because um, when we interview, we're going to interview other people this way. We're going to always do the deep dive because if we're going to get to the shadows in the fashion industry, the parts that are rotten and horrible and that are keeping um, regional apparel hubs from actually becoming something viable, we have to dig deep to pull out the festering cancer. Because it can be so frustrating for new designers and seasoned designers, just the myriad of things that um, the fashion industry has to offer and doesn't when you first get into. And that kind of goes to my second question. Are you ready? I am. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So you've been doing a lot of fashion shows for decades. And I would like for you to talk about the club experience, um, like show experience fashion shows that you have had and how you think that translated across these proliferation of regional shows that want to be like New York Fashion Week or LA Fashion Week instead of embracing a more of an experience where um, the rationale is that people get paid um, and then kind of the balancing between um, real Fashion Week shows? You know, that's that's an incredibly good question, Megan. Um, and I'm gonna touch on what you uh, said about seasoned designers and new designers just before you ask that question. You know, the reason that I had such a difficult time dealing with what I called Austin Fashion W-E-A-K was because I knew what it was supposed to be like. I have been to market. (laughs) I have been to market in Las Vegas. I have been to market in New York. I have done real fashion week. And I, I, I called that whole experience an abomination. Right. So, um, my first fashion show, I I, uh, I, I made my first sale at a, a Prince concert to our local uh, celebrity DJ. He bought the cape right off of my back. And, and so I began uh, to have confidence that I could sell. And I had some uh, press in our local paper, uh, the Detroit Free Press, and um, uh, a magazine called Metropolitan Detroit Magazine did a small and beautiful article uh, on me. And um, I was invited uh, to be the in-store designer for one of our um, most lucrative, well-known seasoned um, punk leather stores. And um, in 1984, um, he invited me to a show at uh, the big annual, God, I'm saying uh, a lot, can we edit that out? Oh yeah, it's okay if we come because you know, people say uh. Um, it's true. <laughs> and folks, and we and have folks, to be we're, real. We're being real. I mean, we're being real. I, I think these things. I, I, 
I fight myself on, I don't want to, I, you know, I sound like a big fag, um, but I am a big fag and that's okay. I, I still have, I still have issues with uh, being perceived as masculine because I'm this hulking man and the fact that I'm actually very androgynous. That's just a side note. We don't have to talk about that today. So I, I did my first show at the Fox theater, which is a internationally renowned theater. And, um, course i wasn't paid for that that was actually good exposure you know uh, three thousand people discovered that i was doing these wonderful things and that that did send them to norm leather and i did get orders um our big club todd's which is a very new york style club uh offered me a store in the club um and in exchange i was to do a fashion show quarterly now i was so young that that seemed like a good idea I was young and naive. Uh, when we would do our shows, they were so well known that people would line up around the block. They had to let two people out to let two people in. They were at capacity all night long. They were making ten or fifteen thousand dollars easily, and 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 that doesn't sound like much in today's money, but in 1984, that was pretty significant. Or ni- 1985 is when I began. That was pretty significant. Mm-hmm. And and you know. Um, looking back, I wish that I had been less naive or I wish that I had had some sort of a uh, um, mentor or manager or agent who could have who could have sat me down and said, you need to be paid part of that door at the very least, if not part of the bar. So uh, that went on for a few years and I really built a brand. And, and the, the good part of that was that I was in charge. The productions were mine. I wasn't I wasn't forced into some. Uh, aberration of a system. I did fully choreographed shows. They were like uh, MTV videos come to life on stage. I, I knew that people understood it was fashion. That, that's a given. So I took the show part very seriously. And um, eventually I, I realized that I should be making money. Uh, you know, I, I guess I was in my mid 20s or late 20s. I, I did sh- uh, shows. Uh, uh, at other clubs, the big clubs uh, throughout that decade. Um, and I only did the shows when I actually had a reason to show. And for me, the value of doing a club show had nothing to do with selling anything. I took a few years off because I thought to myself, people like my shows better than they like my clothes. And that didn't seem to make sense to me, right? And I thought, I'm going to really retrain myself. And so I took two years off and basically redid college. I redid fashion school. I redid technical school. And so when when I would have a new collection that I was going to take to market, I would book a show someplace and I wouldn't charge for it because the value to me was the fact that I had somebody videotaping. We usually had three or four cameras set up around the club so I could see what the show looked like. The value was the responses of the people that the microphone could pick up. And uh, the first time we did this, people talked about the clothes. Oh my God, that's amazing. I could wear that. Oh my God, that's beautiful. Oh, wow. He's come a long way. So that was very valuable. And then, you know, just watching um, the shows and figuring out which part of the theatrics work, which clothing worked well, which clothing looked like it was problematic to um, move in. So I, I built my own value into it. But I will tell you, by the time I left, I realized that most people who are throwing fashion shows don't give a flying fuck about whether the designer is making money. Uh, we we are basically like a band or, or more like a stripper because uh, they do pay bands. And I thought, well, strippers get paid. 
And so um, I was offered an opportunity to do a weekly show at the State Theater, which is right next door to the Fox Theater on Detroit's main drag. Um, and now it faces the uh, Comerica Park uh, and Ford Field, the Lions and Tigers playing field. So it's in a prime area. And I got my name in lights, a foot tall for a contract. And I took a percentage of the ticket sales and we would sell out, we would sell three or 4,000 tickets uh, for each of those events because I was bringing in other national designers. And the State Theater gave me access to the full theater. We had a hydraulic portion of the stage. We had the, at that time, the country's biggest video wall. I had access to booms. We, we would drop models from the ceiling. We had a full stage crew, a full tech crew. And um, I made a fortune. And I also had learned that um, the idea of actually selling clothes at a fashion show off of racks, not viable. People who are coming to a fashion show are not expecting to uh, buy clothes. What the hell are they going to do with them while they're there dancing and watching a show? Who wants um, to carry a bag around? Who wants to carry a fucking bag around? And, you know, we, 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 we actually tried uh, that once or twice. And, you know, we had a holding area, logistical nightmare. But I learned that people would buy a T-shirt. You can roll a t-shirt up it's very small you can put a t-shirt on over what you're wearing people would buy postcards or calendars or posters so we learned uh, uh to merchandise and sell branding materials right so like look and feel and that kind of thing. look and yeah. feel and you know i always had a lookbook out <clears throat> and we did have somebody there that could take orders uh, and most of what what we did in the way of selling apparel at that point in time is to book appointments to come to my atelier and talk to me about um, actually creating something for people. So, uh, and my rule of thumb ever since has been, I, if I'm doing a show and it's actually not going to um, give me any value, then they have to pay me as an entertainer. And, and, you know, we both know some producers in Austin and some producers in, and I say producers with big quotes because uh, they're really just party planners and hairdressers. They're like, okay, it's an event planner, yeah, but embrace which, it, but embrace is, it. Which is lovely because a fashion show is an event. However, if you're going to be an event planner for fashion shows, you have to have some basic understanding of the industry and what the whole fucking point is. Um, yeah, you shouldn't be asking for freebies, freebies. from designers uh, well, when well, you can't dress yourself. <laughs> one woman that we know in common, and I'm not going to mention any names, I don't think we're insured yet, uh, was always asking both of us to do um, uh, benefit shows for a social organization. And I would ask her what her budget was. And she would say, well, you know, I don't, I, I spent everything on the food and the venue and the DJ. So this woman knew that you had to pay for things and right. she said well well the clothes are already done and i said darling every gown has to be dry cleaned and each gown is about 250 dollars because we have to unpick things to dry clean them right. and we certainly are not having our gowns worn by models and fashion shows and then hung back up to ruin like how 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 much do you want to steam sanitize a garment that has pearls on it, Benson? Right. No, yeah. <laughs> I, I, with my garments now, I, I actually do clean. I, I have learned to do some amount of dry cleaning at home. Um, but but 
and I do a lot of hand washing, but that still takes hours because the drying process, you know, yeah. you got to block them out, make sure they don't stretch or, yep. or warp or, or wrink. So um, that's a, something that I think that all designers should learn to ask. What is mm -hmm. your budget to have me at your fashion show? Now, this is well, not the case if the show is an actual show. Designers should expect to pay if they're supplying top-rate models and top-rate hair and top-rate makeup. And they're inviting buyers from all over the country and real fashion press, not some chick that has a blog. Or a podcast. Or a podcast. So like, but I want to go back to the very end of that question is like, how do you think it's because promoters really were selling the look and feel of LA Fashion Week, New York Fashion Week, Paris Fashion Week to designers who had a fantasy about showing at these things, not realizing they had to put a bunch of things in place for them to even benefit from a quote unquote pay to play or even a free to show event for a charity. But like, how do you think that they realized that they profited more from trying to sell this dream model than create an, an actual show like you did? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, okay. The two or three people that I'm thinking about understood that fashion shows generate money. Uh, they understood that they were making money off of the dreams of young people. And as we witnessed, uh, Megan, that promise that promise and that that um, horrible deception of, of, of leading people to believe that this would become a viable way to sell clothing and that they would be given um, the opportunity to sell crushed dreams. Absolutely. I can think of a half dozen designers that spent thousands and thousands of dollars to be in those Austin shows who eventually just their dreams were crushed. So I, I don't think that there's anything innocent about what they do. I think that they they uh, know that the project runwayification of fashion has everyone interested um, in fashion. And so they, they pretend to be a real show when they're anything but the only person making money. You know, in Austin, uh, they charged hairdressers to come and do hair. They didn't yeah. even use the revenue from the bloody um, ticket sales to pay the hairdressers or the models. Now, eventually some people did get paid, but till the very end, the last time I was there, they were still trying to charge massive salons that had no need to be exposed to anyone in Austin. They were still trying to charge them uh, to be exposed at their show. So it is an absolute abomination and a scam. The way it's supposed to work, people, the fashion designer is the one that's supposed to pay everyone, right? Everyone. Yeah. Let's stop arguing about that. The fashion designer is supposed to pay the photographer and the model. The model's not supposed to pay the photographer. The photographer's not supposed to pay the model. They're supposed to be a client, and that's the uh, designer. That's the apparel company. And we are the ones that have to um, have the garments to sell. That's the whole point. Right. So I mean, what are we doing here? To fuel an apparel culture. And if, if that is not happening, you have an entertainment. And much like when they book a rock show, they have to have a goddamn budget to pay you. They have to pay you at least as well as a stripper. And, and they do realize it because like lights get paid, the bill, rental bills get paid, the sound mixer gets paid, the DJ gets paid, the people behind the bar get paid. 
And the like security gets paid, the guy security. taking the tickets gets paid, the ballet yeah. gets paid, the theater right. certainly gets paid. And and also they're making money from their bars. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that, the, that what happens is people who wish they were a part of the fashion industry uh, uh, frequent these shows to hang out and rub elbows with people who have enough money to pretend to be the fashion industry. And everyone feels like they're part of fashion. And it's a lie. It's an abomination. What's happening in Denver is it's a fucking hair show. It's a hairball and lovely. And those are brilliant and they're entertaining. But stop lying to people and telling them that it's fashion week. In Austin, Texas, stop lying and telling people that it's a fashion week. It's a fucking fashion party. Okay. And I, I got a little, ooh, I got a little heated, didn't I? This no, it makes me angry. It makes me angry to see these these party promoters raping people. And 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 monetizing. figuratively, figuratively. Well, I I don't know. In some cases, it may be uh, literal. Oh well, heard. like that's a different that's a podcast. Whole different podcast. Please join us next week Tuesday when we have episode zero two, and we go a little bit further into our fashion stories and careers, and open up a little bit more to you. And as always, we welcome your questions, and please join us at advanced fashion disruption.com where you can connect with us there. Thanks for listening.